Hello, this is a prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to uh, another episode of Collect Call from Sing Sing. I just want to let you guys know that we have an open mic episode coming out next week. We'll hear from some of the men inside with me in Sing Sing, speaking to the current state of our nation. So keep an eye out for that episode next week. But today, though, I'll be talking to Shaka Singor. Shaka is out of Detroit. He served 19 years for murder, seven of which he spent in solitary. He's also a New York Times bestselling author and super accomplished dude. I just wanted to let you know, we recorded this interview with him a few months back, and we weren't in this current state in terms of protest and what's been going on. Uh, I think so much of Shaka Singor's message, though, and perhaps some of what he talks about with me is stuff that people need to hear, especially now. It's tough to sift through the us versus them rhetoric, good versus bad, nonviolent protesters versus violent protesters, black versus white, citizen versus criminal. This is like the sort of othering language that is directly related to what happened with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. I mean, we can't forget that the suspicion of like criminality and the expectation of who the criminal may be or what he or she may look like and how the criminal needs to be subdued and dominated and censored, I mean, is at the center of all this. So it's an interesting conversation. And when we think about the criminal, the convict, the murderer, the felon, I think most of us have an idea, if we're honest with ourselves, of how that person looks and sounds and thinks and that's something I think I guess we all have to reckon with especially even me as you know somebody that's white has been in the system I guess my whole life you know I've been in the system since a juvenile adolescent and now for the past 19 years as an adult and I've mostly been around black people and when I watch what's going on I don't know if I if I have a the visceral reaction that my peers have and I have to take a beat and take a look at that so Enough said. Let's get to my conversation with Shaka Singor. Hope you guys get something out of it. Thanks. Hey, Shaka. What's up? Hey, John. How's it going, man? Uh, Shaka Singor, thank you for uh, talking to us here. And uh, this is a collect call from Sing Sing, man. Appreciate you coming on. Well, I mean, it's an honor, man. Anytime I can fellowship with my brothers and sisters on the inside, it's really important that I do so. So, Appreciate you for having me, and a shout-out to T.I.'s team for connecting me. I appreciate your fortitude and, and figuring out a way to, you know, share stories and public stories that are important, that address the issues. And uh, just your resiliency, man, hats off to that, man, and salute for that, because I, I get it. You know, I published my first book from prison, man, so I know what it takes to get stuff done. So uh, yeah. definitely salute that. And we have a lot in common. I identify a lot. You did 19 years for second-degree murder. I'm in my 19th year of incarceration for second-degree murder. You're a writer. I'm a writer. I'm white and you're black, but race matters less when you're talking about shared human experiences. 
Would you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. it's unfortunate, man, that, that one of the things that we handle very poorly in this country is the, is the reality of what we look like on the outside. Uh, because if you ever spend any time on the inside of prison, you realize color begins to matter less and less. You just tearing a band around your humanity and just recognize that we're all sharing a, a, a horrible experience and just trying to figure out ways to make the best of it. In Detroit, when, uh, I mean, how are the racial lines out there? Because in New York, cities, like, neighborhoods are on top of each other, like, ethnicities sort of blend. I mean, there are, like, the Puerto Rican cores, you know, the Dominican cores, the white boy cores, and other things. But we kind of blend with each other here in Sing Sing, and even other joints I spent time in, and Attica and Clinton. What about Detroit? I mean, is the vibe, like, really racially segregated up there? What's the vibe like up there? No, Michigan was really different. Like, you know, I, I live in L.A. now, and I've gone inside the prisons where the, the, um, the divide is very clear. Uh, not so much as it was back in the day, but it's still a very clear presence of division in California. But in Michigan, it wasn't like that because I think it, it reflects more the culture of the communities we come from. Uh, Detroit specifically was about 90% black when I was growing up. Um, yeah. But there's also a high Middle Eastern population in the surrounding suburbs and Polis and, you know, everything you can imagine. So it's, it's pretty much like a melting pot. In that way, and in the joint, it's, it's more about what city you come from, what neighborhood you come from, and really just about who you are. So it wasn't that, that clear divisiveness. Of course, there's always, you know, racial racialized organizations and things like that, um, but it just wasn't that stark at some other places. So if I were, uh, you know, sort of marking the pivotal plot points of your life story arc, Here's what it would look like. I'm just running down real quick. Plot point one, traumatic upbringing, mom abusive, parents divorced. Plot point two, at 14, you leave home, immerse in the street life. At 17, get shot three times. After that, you start carrying a gun. Plot point three, at 19, Chaka shoots and kills uh, a man during a drug deal. Goes to prison for second-degree murder. Yard bars. Uh, builds prison rep. You know, goon shit, solitary. Plot point four, Shaka receives letter of forgiveness from victim's godmother, receives letter from son, makes Shaka rethink identity. Plot point five, Shaka reads, writes books, finds purpose. Plot point six, prison sues Shaka for self-publishing. Plot point seven, he gets out, grinds, sells books, teaches class at University of Michigan, MIT Media Lab, TED Talk. Oprah reads Shaka's writing my wrongs. It becomes bestseller. Shocker's off to the stratosphere. This is like an oversimplified story of you know of just me putting on my writer's cap. But I just want to bring up like the the listener, you know, to speed on Shocker's and Gore of like the writer's outline of your bio. Is that is that okay for just an oversimplification? Oversimplification. I just want to hit those plot points. It's a pretty pretty good timeline. Uh, actually, I should have you introduce me at my talks nowadays. You did a great job, Captain Essence. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great way to, to really bring people into the trajectory of what happened. And the reality is like that, that timeline is representative of a lot of men that's currently incarcerated, uh, with the exception of the back end, what comes after that. But, you know, fortunately, I know a lot of incredible people who have got out and moved on to do some incredible things in the world. So a uh, pretty accurate timeline. So I relate to like the trauma, like with your mother, like, 
sometimes I don't really want to go into this stuff with my mom because I feel like when it all went down, like she was, she she was with me when everybody like hated me. But just when writing your memoir, did you grapple with like, you know, sort of like putting it out there, what would happen with mom, what mama loved, and like, was it, was it hard to like reveal that stuff? I mean, I imagine it was hard, but like, did you grapple with actually just putting it out there? It was very difficult, I mean, because I was writing from a very honest space. And the thing that allowed me to uh, navigate the difficulty of it was recognizing that I had a responsibility to the kids I was mentoring who was going through similar things. You know, I worked at a few schools in Detroit, and I would see kids who had been traumatized by their parents and who were going back into households where abuse was normalized. And so to me, to not be honest about what transpired in my life, would have been doing a disservice to them, and you know, and it caused some, uh, you know, some some, some some antagonism between my mother and I, until I really sat down with her and explained to her, like, you know, of course you're not that woman that you were back then, and neither about the man that I was back when I went to prison, but I had to acknowledge that I made a poor decision that led me going to prison, and you have to accept that these are the things that you did, and that's how they affected me when I was a kid and she was able to, to get that, you know, and so now we're in a better space where we at least communicate. You know, I don't think we'll ever have like that father son dynamic that I've seen. I mean, father mother dynamic that I've seen with other, uh, you know, people in their, in their parents, but you know, that was what our experience was. And, you know, I'm living a different life and she's living a different life. And we just try to find common ground now. When we talk about murder in America, I think they usually see it through the lens of, like, the true crime narratives that are out there, and they're everywhere nowadays. You know, words like evil and psychopath, they explain the characters who do the deeds. So, when, But when you talk, I heard, when we talk about, you know, the crime, you know, you committed and we committed, it's like you use words like fear and masks and inauthentic self. Could you elaborate on that, on how it, that relates to that moment where you find yourself, you know, with a gun ready to take a life? Yeah, no, I, I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think it's one that's not asked often enough. And it's one of the reasons that I decided to write the book because, you know, when you watch the news headline, you just hear the most heinous things said about oftentimes kids or very young people who are making poor decisions. And then the other side of it is that our culture glorifies the streets in a way that's not really honest. Um, and so when I got into writing the book, you know, I thought back to what I really felt when I got shot and not the interpretation of, you know, how somebody feels when they got shot. Like, you know, you listen to 50 Cent, he talked about I got shot nine times and blah, 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 but what he doesn't say, and this is no knock to him because, I, you know, I really respect what he's doing and, and who he's become. But what, it, what I, I say to the, to the young guys growing up is I can promise you in that moment, like, he wasn't thinking about writing a rap song. He was thinking about surviving. And for me, you know, after I got shot, I was in survival mode, and I began to carry a gun because I didn't feel safe. And it's hard to tell your friends when you're standing on the corner that you don't feel safe when a car rides down the block. You know, and so we use different language to make it seem like we're tough and we're hard. But in reality, we're, you know, I was a, I was a scared little boy, you know, and, and living this adult life in this adult world. And, you know, the, the reality is that hurt people hurt people. Like, people say that a lot, but they really, really put some depth to what that means. But I experienced trauma at a very early age, and then there was a series of traumas that 
was was consistent throughout my life, you know, from getting shot, from getting beat, to getting jumped. Um, and I know that those things rewired the way that I saw life and, and the way that I saw, you know, feeling safe in my own community. And so for me carrying a gun, it was a logical conclusion at that age, especially when I had been in an environment where so many of my friends had been shot. You know, in my family alone, eight people have been shot. My oldest brother's been shot twice. He's currently paralyzed. My older brother's been shot. Uh, several cousins, one cousin's been shot multiple times and then he committed suicide. And so just the pervasiveness of gun violence in the culture I grew up in makes you feel unsafe. And so that's that's the energy that I was coming out of. It wasn't like this tough gangster uh, interpretation that you see in, you know, songs and you see on, on movies and TV shows. Like the real life version of that is, you know, you get into a conflict where you're traumatized and then you're responding out of the fear and paranoia of that. And that's what it was for me. And I thought it was important for people to understand the difference between the mask and the authentic self. And my authentic self was, was afraid. Uh, the night I pulled that trigger, I was afraid. I thought that there was an opportunity that I was going to get shot in that exchange and I shot first. And the real uh, interpretation of that is that there probably wasn't any threat. But if you're operating out of, PTSD, like you don't see what somebody who hasn't been shot would see in that exchange. Um, and I thought that was something that's really important for us to talk about because we have epidemics of gun violence all throughout the country. And nobody talks about what leads to somebody shooting somebody. And I felt that it was important for me to do that. Yeah, and you did it well. And I'm sorry for, you know, like, the trauma that has you know, attached to your, to your siblings, and it's just, uh, but you're really, you know, impressive, uh, just the way you unpack it. And for me, when I when I when I shot, you know, it's been so hard for me to unpack because uh, it wasn't abrupt like that. It was more, you know, like sort of fear and and the things that you talk about with masks and and inauthentic self that certainly resonate with me. You know, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of shame I have because, you know, it's, it's just, it was chilling in a way because it was like, I always look at it like as a, as a sort of inner narrative and an outer narrative. The outer narrative is, oh, he did this, he violated, so I had to do this. He was robbing the workers, so I felt I had to do this because this is what the life calls for, right? And then inner narrative is just like this, you know, it has to do with fear, but it has to do with, all, you know, a lot of different emotions and, following through with it and, and saying, all right, I'm going to take him for a ride. I'm going to do this. And this thing, you know, is going to boost my rep. To, to, it's almost shameful to, to acknowledge that this thing is going to boost my rep on one hand. And then, what you know, and you sort of grappling with, like, what, what, am, what am, I, am I really going to do this? And, um, you know, it's been very hard for me to sort that all out when I try to, you know, like you say, be, be my authentic self. But when I did do it, there was so much fear, like, jumping through my body. It was all over my body, and, and that's why there were so many bullets. It was just, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, evil Johnny killing him. It was scared Johnny, fearful Johnny, you know, doing that. And, um, you know, I'm still sorting that out, and that's why I think this conversation is so important. I can really learn from you because I've heard you, you know, talk about this, you know, a lot. So I appreciate you sharing that, and... You know, I guess I'm just telling that to you because I'm still on a journey toward remorse and trying to sort it all out. And I try to do it in my writing, and uh, I just see you really eloquently talk about it. 
and I just appreciate it. I mean, I appreciate you sharing, and I know how difficult it is to come to that realization because that was the same for me. Like, the street interpretation of it is like, oh, he's, you know, he's a shooter. He's that, you know, that guy to be feared. And part of that feeds, you know, the part of us that wants to be accepted. Um, There's a part in the book when I talk about how, you know, we band around our brokenness. And the reality is that, you know, the guys I ran the streets with and the guys I ran the prison yard with, we all have similar backgrounds of that disconnection from our parents, the abuse, uh, the early introduction to the culture. And the culture is rooted in being accepted by your peers who are all broken. And so you, right. you're, you're really, you know, we normalize the abnormal because the environment calls for that in order to be accepted. So if you've been isolated from your household and now you're in an environment where you're accepted, the most horrifying thing is to not be accepted in that environment. And right. that leads to us making the type of decisions that, you know, affirms who we are in that space. And, and nobody really talks about that. So thank you for even having the courage to recognize that you're still in the process of, of, of figuring out, you know, how do I get to a space of remorse? Because we just don't have these conversations. And part of it is because we're ashamed um, or people tell us that when we do try to have them, that we're making excuses. And, re- and really we're just trying to explain what was happening inside of our young brains at the time. And it's important for us to do that. So thank you for having the courage to even admit that you're still on the journey of, you know, getting to that space of, of healing, man, and whatever I could do to support that, uh, without a doubt, you know, you got that. I mean, part of it is just still being in prison, you know, it's still having, to, I mean, the other day I was in the yard, this kid from my neighborhood pulled up, and he was like, uh, is John Lennon here? He, he was like, everyone was saying, everyone was saying, like, yo, this, dude from, this kid from your neighborhood is asking for you to come out to the yard. Like, I, I, I'm not, I don't, yeah, I make my appearances, and I'm like, you know, you, you got to make your appearances, and you, because then it's like, oh, you think you're too good for us, you know, Mr. Esquire, and, you know, this guy. I'm like, nah, man, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm here for you. Like, I'm here, what's up? Like, where, where's he at? Like, you know, I spent, I spent the yard with him, and, and it was, and you know, and I heard the conversations, and it was, it was the reputation. I was, I was bothered that he didn't hear that I was a fucking contributing editor for Esquire. And he, and he was like, "Yo, this kid's nuts. He, he machine gun." I'm like, what, "What are you talking about? Like, like you didn't hear what I'm doing?" Like, and he was like, and he was talking about that other narrative. And that shit just disgusted yeah. me, bro. Like, this shit fucked me yeah. up, and it was, just, it just bothered me, you know. And it's just, it's the conflict yeah. that I'm in because I am where I still am, and it's, it's, it's a major complication of my life. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Like, you know, when I when I began the path and the journey toward healing, you know, I was still in solitary confinement, and I, so I was there from 99 until 2004 on that last four-and-a-half-year stretch. So, yeah, when I stepped out of solitary, you know, the, the representation had preceded me, and that was the part that was a little, you know, tough to na- navigate because, you know, guys want to see you as this, you know, this, this prison yard legend, and they only want to see you through that lens. Uh, but I was fortunate, you know, to really have good guys around me who understood where I was trying to go in life and to support that. And then I started, like, you know, facilitating classes around emotional healing. And, you know, I, I've always done it through the lens of just regular talk. Like, how do we talk to each other when we're talking about, you know, a bunch of bullshit? It was just like, okay, let's switch the conversation touch point. Uh, but still just keeping the language, like, you know, uh, authentic to the culture, you know, and, and guys yeah. resonated with that well, you know. And then it was just consistency, you know, like consistently saying, you know, 
it's cool that you see me this way, but here's where I'm at today and here's why I'm here and being able to kind of help guys unpack it. And it just required a lot of one-on-one walks, you know. Um, yeah. But eventually guys start saying that, okay, I'm committed to living my life in a different way, you know. And it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, the prison yard is the prison yard. You still got to survive. You still got to stand up for what you believe in. But, you know, I just started pivoting into a more focused direction. Yeah, and there and there is this and there is this group of just dynamite guys. Sing Sing, you know, to be fair to Sing Sing, you know, <laughs> they tolerate me a lot here. Um, but you know, they do have a lot of uh, progressive programs, and they have a lot of amazing dudes. That I mean, you got dudes walking around Sing Sing with master's degrees and a really, really, uh, you know, intelligent. Uh, I mean, this is just this is really decent man. You know, I was talking to my boy last night. He's finishing up his master's degree, and. Uh, you know, like his name is Mikael, and, and he's just a good dude. You know, he and and he, you know, we just were having just a major heart to heart. And I was telling him about you, and I was telling him, yeah, I'm about to do this interview with Stu Shock, and he was like, yeah, no, I heard a dude, and we were just we were just really having a heart to heart, just about life, and and you know what what he's doing, he's about to take his, you know, he's he's taking his next semester for his master's degree and in professional studies here at Sing Sing, and. And we were just talking about we just you know I just I pull up to it to a spot you know we have a little gallery rack I pull up to the tier and a little toast about his joint you know so I was toasting I was like you know what's up Mick you know you just slide on over and give him give him some love but uh you know you try to stick with the winners and 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 at the same time you do you do stroll the yard and then try to I do give guys time and because uh, you have to have that balance but let me ask you let me ask you this like so when you get the letter from the godmother of the man you murdered, it makes you it makes you melt because you receive empathy from someone you hurt. Uh a part yeah. of you know, I'll be honest, like a part of me envies that because this grace of forgiveness that you were afforded, it compelled you to become I mean, did it compel you to become a better man? I don't I mean it's I, w- I would imagine I can't imagine what that would feel like. Um but how did it feel? Yeah, I mean, when when I first got the letter, uh, I was about five years into my sentence. Mm. And so I was probably around 25 or so, 20, yeah, 25 or so. And emotionally, I just wasn't at a space where I could really embrace the fullness of the gifts she extended to me. But it was something about the letter that really pricked my conscience in such a way where for the years following that, I began to process what does it mean to be forgiven and more importantly what do I need to do to forgive myself because that's where the major obstacle was self-forgiveness and what I realized through uh, was that I was going to be on this lifelong journey of forgiving myself and that it's a process Um, but it was one of the most beautiful gifts that anybody has extended to me because it made me acknowledge my own humanity and the fact that she pointed to, you know, at 19, I was a kid. It was really like the first time I even saw myself, like, in that light, you know? Um, As a kid. But that, the, the, yeah, like, like you know, because, I mean, like, I had been in the streets since I had been, you know, 14 years old. And, and you know, it's a very adult-driven culture. And, right. you know, for her to recognize that, you know, I made a poor decision and that she was willing to extend the gift of forgiveness, you know, it, it opened up my mind to the possibility of what that means. And I and I just say this to you and anybody in there who's grappling with it, is mm-hmm. it's not a one-off thing. It's not like I got the letter and bam, okay, all is forgiven, I can move on. 
it's right. been a long process. You know, I mean, there are things that trigger me to this day that make me feel that same guilt and that same shame, um, knowing that I've caused this tremendous amount of hurt to this family. Um, and so I have to constantly do the, the, the self-healing process. I have to go through saying, hey, that was a poor decision at 19. That's not who you are today. Um, you know, you've been forgiven by some and some you haven't been forgiven by, uh, but ultimately you have to forgive yourself. And so it's a process. It doesn't come easy. I encourage, you know, anybody who's gone through what we've gone through to seek help in, in, in processing that. You know, I'm uh, currently in the process of finding the right therapist for me. I'm fortunate that I do have great counselors around me to be able to talk these things through. But, you know, it's a lifelong process, man, because, you know, it's different from, like, you know, if you steal something from somebody, you can you can pay them back. Uh, when you take yeah. a life, you can never replace that, you know, and that's the hard thing about the healing process is this constant reminder that that we've deprived somebody of something that we can never restore. Um, and that's why the process for me has been one of constantly paying attention and making sure that I forgive myself over and over. Even when I make, you know, poor decisions today, um, as as happens when you're when you're a human, you know. Uh, to be kind to myself and, 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 and extend grace uh, to myself. And that's what that letter gave me was the space to recognize that more than anything that I had to forgive the part of me that, that ran astray. A lot of times, you know, in here, I've been in here going on 19 years now, and the only, I just wrote a piece uh, in the Washington Post magazine called The Apology Letter, and I talk about, like, you know, coming to terms with, um, there's like this apology letter bank. I don't know if they had them in Detroit, so I, I wrote this letter to the apology bank, and it was after, like, this this dude came to, visit, came to visit me and interviewed me, the governor's brother, like, you know, Chris Cuomo, he comes in here, and he, and it was like one of those true crime kind of narratives. It really, it really wasn't. I, really, I don't, I'm not promoting it. But um, at the same yeah. time, you know, he was like, uh, I mean, there was some good stuff in there, but there was some just some stuff that it was like, doom, you know, I was like, come on, dude. But but at the same time, like, like he reached out to the family. And I had never, I had never like, talked to the family. Like, you know what I mean? I, you know, I'm over here trying to beat the murder rap, you know, when I came to prison, you know. Um, and then I didn't, and, you know, so I come to prison and, 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 you know, they reached out to me and were like, you know, they said you never reached out to apologize. And I was like, well, I mean, I, I didn't, we we're not allowed to reach out to apologize, but it wasn't even about that. You know, it was like, I didn't reach out to, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't make an attempt. I, I wrote all these articles and so I was, I, it, was, it was me grappling with that in this article in the Washington Post and. Really, just at the end, you just see how, like, we're, we're kind of on our own with that. You know, like, even this conversation I'm having right now is, like, cathartic. Like, really cathartic. Like, I mean, I, I guess I should pay you, like, $100 an hour or something. Like, is that therapy <laughs> kind of cathartic? You know what I mean? Maybe it'll give me... I'm a, a little bit more expensive than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, I, but you know what I'm saying? It's just, like, you don't get this, you don't get this shit in here. And, you know, it's, just, yeah. it's why this is... I mean, it's just real. Let me ask you this. Like, uh... Mm. So you published that, self-published that first book, and you say the prison system 
sues you. Let's bring the bring bring the listeners up to speed with that. What happens with all that? So like you, you publish a book, you yeah. know, like we got we got we got to unpack this, you know, and you know where we're gonna go. Just please tell me. Yeah. So so when I when I first uh, when I began to write and I started taking it serious, first I sent a bunch of manuscripts out to publishing companies, never heard back, and I kind of went into that 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 depressed space of like, woe is me and. Nobody's going to give me a shot. And then I realized that like, I'm responsible for giving myself a shot. And I and my partner at the time, you know, we decided to self-publish. And so she was like kind of like the legs on the ground. And I was kind of like the quarterback. And mm-hmm. basically we were in the process of getting the cover design. And she sent me the cover from our company, which we had established, which was really important. Um, and so when the cover came through, somebody in the mailroom thought that I had got a, a major publishing deal. And they sent that to the attorney general, and then they sued me for 90% of the proceeds of the book. And the book hadn't even made any money yet. And basically what they did is they tallied my per-day cost and what they estimated the cost of my incarceration would be and basically said that I owed them 90% of anything I made up until that cost was paid off as long as I was incarcerated. And so what I did is I, I, I ended up through the company – writing a contract to myself saying I would only accept 10% of the proceeds. So they went from suing me for like 90% of $15 per book to only being able to sue for 90% of $1.50 per book. And then I just made sure that I didn't make any money until I got out of prison. So in essence, they wasted taxpayers' dollars because they didn't realize I worked in the law library and I was a little bit more <laughs> uh, legally savvy than they anticipated. But what that, what that told me, though, man, is it spoke to this deeper issue of like, how do society expect us to navigate life post-incarceration if we are not given opportunities or when we create them ourselves, they're immediately taken away? And, like, right. that part was the most hurtful thing. Is I'm like, here it is. I'm trying to do something for myself. I knew it wasn't nobody going to just hire me getting out of prison. I knew I would have to make my own way. And then they were trying to take that off the table before I can even get put out the door, you know. And fortunately, they, right. they wasn't able to get any money, Um but it's, you know, again, it's something that society doesn't know about. It's like when you're in prison, if you have any money, they'll force you to pay for the cost of your incarceration, right. even though right. taxpayers have already put the bill. And so it was just one of those things. I was like, wow, I, I didn't even anticipate that. But when it happened, I'm happy I was able to respond to it. It's important, like the 13th Amendment, you know, when Ava DuVernay does the 13th. This is, this is an important sort of documentary. You know, it's it's... It's the clause that sanctions prison slave uh, labor and, and people reentering society broken, broke, with no money. And, I mean, what's society's reasonable expectation for the formerly incarcerated? I think we can do a whole show on this. Like, I mean, like, what, yeah. what, do, you, like, what do you think? Like, I mean, so, like, in my situation, what I'm doing here is raise a lot of eyebrows, right? But, but I don't think, like, I just don't think, the, the, the governor of my state, Governor Cuomo, I mean, he's supporting, you know, like sort of, you know, progressive. It, it was a different era back then, let's just say that. So when Absolutely. you got that, when he came for you, it was the height of, um, to be fair, it was it was the height of, you know, lock him up and throw away the key. I mean, fair assessment? I mean, this is late 90s when, you, when they came down. Okay. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So it makes you yeah, feel so, better. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, uh, you know, shout out to Ava for for the film Thirteenth. I actually, uh, Ava's a, a friend of mine and, a, and a, a default mentor. She's incredible, and that film has been monumental in helping shifting 
uh, the narratives uh, around what incarceration is. And, and, you know, to your point, like I went in in 1991, this was at the height of the Clinton administration's tough on crime and, you know, that whole mentality. And, I mean, we're in a different space, and, I, you know, I'm happy to say that I've been able to contribute a lot to shifting the conversation to a more humane approach and being in those conversations with politicians and, and the leading organizations. I mean, you're talking Cut 50 and anti-recidivism coalition were doing incredible work in the world to change things. And, I mean, like, they're making it happen. And I was a part of both of those organizations, you know, and, and, and using my experience. But to your point, now we're in, a, we're in a better space. You know, we're not where eventually we'll be. Uh, but, but, you know, even you using your voice in the way that you're using it, it's helping right. to highlight things that people right. just don't know about. You know, my boy, you know, my boy like, uh, he was telling me, he's like, you know, he's a real revolutionary type. He was like, you wouldn't have got that shit off. You wouldn't have. <laughs> he said they would have had your yeah, ass man. Back, back, Come on, bro. Ain't, ain't, no, ain't no way ain't no way back in the day you would have made this happen, man. So, I mean, this is a, re- this is a reflection of the change, you know. And I, and I think a lot of, a lot of the politicians... It's a reflection of your credit. work, though. Your work and, and a lot of people out, out, out there like you. That's what it, that's what it's a reflection of. So thank you, man, because it allows me to, you know, you know, to 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 do my thing in here without without these people coming down on me and and really to get the yeah. stories out there. So thank you and Ava and everybody out there, man. I mean, there's you know, the Marshall Project that's really letting letting these people uh, like get up off me, like where it's like they they can, yeah. they can let us live. You know what I mean? I mean, there is this absurd like assumption that we on the inside have to wait until we get on the outside to relinquish the label of criminal, become a, become a abiding, like, you know, law abiding citizen, like build a career and pay taxes. I reject that. I reject that on its face. I will not wait, you know, to get out to build a career. And I would, and I, and I would like to think that society, you know, you know, would root for me with that. Like, like, why would you know? Why, and, and my peers that you know that see, like, you know what? I see, I see what you're doing, and fuck it, if I'm not going to try, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, we do live in the market system. This is America. I mean, like, yeah. we have like a lot of like, like we have to, we have to, we have to compete and struggle to earn a living when we get out there. I mean, like, damn, if if don't hate on us for trying to get you know, sort of a head start. Like, so, I mean, it's, just, it's a very controversial issue, though. You know what I mean? Because... No, I, I, highly encourage, I, I highly encourage, you know, people inside to get a head start because it's hard to jump out of here after decades inside, um, even when you're prepared. And I think I was pretty well prepared coming home, but it's such a yeah. steep learning curve. And so the, the earlier starts you get, the better. And that's one of the things, speaking of the Marshall Project, I went to Germany to study the prisons with them. And one of the things that happens in Germany is from the moment a person is arrested, they're putting the structure in place to make sure that they come out on the other side healthy and whole. So it starts from day one, not not 60 days before you go home. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And, you know, so it's important, man, for you to be doing the work that you're doing now uh, because you're going to create space for you to have, you know, employment. And, but also to be able to be a contributing member to society, which, you know, I think everyone on the inside deserves that opportunity. You're coming home, you should be able to contribute to society in a meaningful way. And in order to do that, you got to develop those skills while you're inside. Yeah, the Marshall Project, I mean, they opened in 2014. Uh, you know, when, when Bill Keller got with Neil Barsky and left the New York Times, I, I read an article at the time. I was like, this dude like used to be the boss of the New York Times. He's opening a nonprofit. And, you know, I was honored to sort of have, like, 
the first article that, that sort of debuted the Marshall Project, Dying in Attica, with two other articles. And Bill Keller has been a mentor uh, of mine uh, over the years. And, you know, he's just, you know, what they've, what they've been doing, what, what they've been able to do, him and Carol, you know, and, you know, and the, uh, you know, Susan, you know, the, the current editor-in-chief, they're, they're, they're really, you know, the top shelf uh, journalists over there. I'm glad to be, you know, sort of uh, affiliated with them. Let me ask you this: like, uh, like a friend of mine in here says, success is when preparation meets opportunity. I think actually, it was actually my friend that I was talking to last night, my boy Mikhail, and he said, uh, I mean, I think he sort of paraphrases it from another quote. He did tell me to mention that, <laughs> but I think. I think this applies to you when you knew some of Oprah's people were going to be at that event and you bought copies of your memoir for the whole audience. Is this how this went down? I mean, you prepared for this, like, like you, well, like you put an effort well, no, in me, how, did that go, how did that go down? No, well, let me give you the, the story. Like, I didn't, I didn't know her people technically were going to be in an audience. I just knew that there was okay. an interesting audience and that it, the audience was... So what I would do is... I, I realized I used to set up book signings, right? And like 15 people would show up. And the bookstores would be like, oh, that's, that's a great turnout. But in my mind, I'm like, I can't pay the bills on 15 people showing up. So what I started doing was focusing more on the speaking engagement because now you have a room of 300 people. And then after I speak, that means I'm selling, you know, 75, 100, 100 books or so, right? Um, and so whenever I was speaking, I would always just figure out, okay, who am I speaking to? Who is the audience? And there, there's times where I'm like, okay, this is the audience that's going to buy books. And then there's times when it's like, oh, this is the audience where I should give books to because if they read it, they'll, you know, talk about it. And that's almost as good as somebody buying a book if they're talking about it on big platforms. And so that's what happened is I, I was in an interesting room, and I was like, yo, let me send some books ahead of time because this is the type of room you want somebody in there to read your book because yeah. if they read it and it moves them, you know, for one, it's going to confirm that you're a good writer um, because it's not just you're not just speaking to the choir. But secondly, they're in the they're in the position to actually propel your work to the next level. And just so happened, uh, one of her former presidents of her company was there, and she read it and ended up giving the book to Oprah. So that was that was like trusting my instinct, you know, and, and being entrepreneurial, right? It's like marketing the same things we learned in the right. streets is, you know, marketing and, and things like that. And so, you know, that it was really just a gut instinct that this was the right room to put a book in. Um, yeah. And that happened. But, but let me, let me also say this because, because a lot of people have this misperception that just because Oprah reads your book that all of a sudden you're, you know, you have no more worries. No, that was just the beginning of it. You know what I'm saying? That was the, right. that was the beginning of you know, really positioning me to actually get the book mainstream. But then that's when the real work kicked in after that. Like I had to get out of hustle my ass off at a whole different level. You know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> and I had to be a lot more professional and I had to be, you know, Absolutely. countless days of travel and showing up, you know. So it's not yeah. just a magic wand thing. It's definitely a blessing. And, and she's, she's supported me in an amazing way. But you still have to put the work in. I listened to her interview with you, and, 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 it, and I had to tell my people on the other end, stop the tape right there. I was writing it down. And in all her years conducting thousands of interviews, Oprah told you she found that the one thing that all people wanted most was to be validated. Absolutely. And like that, 
that 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 stopped me. I was like, wow, yeah, ain't that the truth? I felt it stopped you too. I think you had mentioned something about power, and she was like, you know, no, it's really validation. And, and you know, she's she has this way of connecting with like you know with people when she interviews. I mean, I mean, she's journalism chops. You know, she comes, she's a real journalist. You know, and then she she has that like that way of connecting in the talk show. But she, yeah, I mean, that was really. Uh, I mean, I appreciate her, appreciate her coming, you know, from as from a journalist background too. And she's when she said that, it just stopped me. I was like, hell yeah, you know, we, we want to be validated. But you know what you did though, uh, Shock, and I, and I just have to straight up thank you for. Let me tell you something about Oprah. Like, you know, back in in the mid two thousands, when I was in Attica, she did a show like on prison marriages or something. Like she. But she Dude, really weren't a big fan of Oprah. Like, who's trying to get hit with the prison websites? And she did a big show like, "Beware the prisoners." They're manipulating some shit. Like, it was just, it wasn't really like, you know, like, you know, too, you know, favorable. Understandably, you know, from her, from her, from her point, her audience, you know, and it was a show where, you know, but then what you did, bro, is like, you changed her mind, like, and and her, and she wanted to know your intention of that interview and you said that people are redeemable most people in prison are redeemable that was your intention to do that interview so like you know for me and everybody in here on some real shit like you know i want to say thank you man well i appreciate that man and, and oprah and i've had extensive talks and i can tell you that you know the the, the most powerful thing was when she actually shared that that conversation really opened her eyes in a way that they just hadn't. And she's put the work in since then. I mean, she mm-hmm. went to Soledad, you know, prison. She incorporates, you know, uh, prison conversation into her entertainment spaces. Like, you know, Queen Sugar, one of the main characters on there, is now formally incarcerated after our conversation. And, you know, she's done a 60-minute segment. And so it, it's a learning space for all of us. And one of the things that I really admire about, about Oprah is that she actually – never stops learning. And she's never, you right. know, shied away from saying, hey, I had that one wrong and I want to figure out a new path moving forward, but also right. still hold people accountable. And I think that's where we come from. Like we, you right. know, it started with us holding ourselves accountable, you know, and so um, that's a real thing. And, I mean, the fears are out there, you know, and, and sometimes rightfully so. Like, you know, it's, it's a lot of what we've done in our community hasn't been, you know, anything to be proud of. And sadly, too many of us take pride in it. But, you know, it's terrible when, when our children don't feel safe and they don't feel welcomed in their own community as a result of the decisions we've made. And so acknowledging that is as important as acknowledging, hey, we messed up and we have an opportunity to turn it around and we're willing to put the work in. And then I had the support of Ava and I had the support of Oprah. And, and you know, even like my guy Ben Hall, which got a new book out called What You Do Is Who You Are, and he dedicates two chapters to the things I learned in prison and how you can apply them to your company culture but he and I, we talk extensively. I mean, he's one of the top uh, venture capitalists in the world, but he's the dopest dude in the sense that he connects with the realness of our experience, and he wants to figure out ways to help. And he donated all the proceeds of his book, basically the criminal justice reform and, uh, you know, in, in Haiti. And so, you know, to have people like that, man, who are basically, you know, shifting culture through their various ways, listening and really listening with an open heart, um, I think that's the power of storytelling, man. And so I appreciate that you're telling stories that matter because, you know, you're contributing. You know, it's not just me. You're a contributor as well and the many other men and women who are writing and talking and speaking and 
organizing and doing all the things. So, uh, you know, salute y'all for that, that work, man. And, you know, tell the brothers on the cell block, I got mad love and respect for them to keep their heads up and, and do the work now so when they get out, it'll be a lot easier. This is, like, really cathartic for me, and, and I just appreciate it. Thank you, Shaka, for coming on. This is a collect call from Sing Sing. All right, bro, stay up, man. This is a collect call from Sing Sing. It's produced by Jeff DeRay, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater, with help from Elena Garcia, Jack Greenbaum, and Devin Sherman. Special thanks to Norm Pattis, Peter Morris, Elizabeth Baquet, and Rachel Yanover. Follow John on Twitter at JohnJLennon1, and check out his work at JohnJLennon.org. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. 